You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. Once a week, we go back into our archives and dig out an episode that those of you who've recently joined us might not have heard. And this week, it's my great pleasure to bring you the one and only Victor Gregg. He comes on this podcast a fair bit. He is now into his third century on planet Earth. We had a special podcast a year and a half ago to celebrate his 100th birthday. I'm pleased to say that he's still in good health. He has survived COVID in his current sheltered accommodation. And I'm looking forward to going and checking up with him when we're allowed to do so. This is a second of a two-part podcast that I recorded with Victor Gregg, just about his life and career in the army. He's sort of little bit of the Forrest Gump of the Second World War. He was in North Africa, Italy, Arnhem, and then he was taken prisoner of war and ended up in a prisoner of war camp in Dresden in East Germany. He was there on the 13th of February this week in 1945 when British and American heavy bombers incinerated the city of Dresden. He has some pretty painful memories and he has some very forthright views about that particular raid. I took him to Dresden, a history hit project when he was 98, a couple of years ago now. We returned to Dresden and you can watch that documentary on History Hit TV. Very emotionally met up with other survivors of the Dresden raid, a German lady in particular who had a huge impact on him, who was a child at the time of the bombing. You can go and watch that on historyhit.tv. It's the new history channel that we've launched, hundreds of hours of history documentaries and all of the back episodes of this podcast there to be listened to. For a small subscription, you get to join and help us create a completely new history channel for proper history fans. We've also got a live tour this autumn. Please come and check it out. Go to historyhit.com slash tour to get your tickets. It'd be great to have you along in the flesh, share a beer and a laugh and some talks about history. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy this episode. It picks up kind of halfway through his wartime experience with the one and only Victor Gregg. Izzy saw two of his friends killed and went mad. Yeah. Why? Yeah, but the same thing happened to me. When? When, when Frankie got killed. Frankie Bat was another one of the lads, was one of the lads who joined up with me. Frankie Bat was one of the six who I'd taken the train down to Winchester with, and he lived in Ballsbourne Road. We were all Londoners, and Frankie came up. He, he's in this 1500 way, full of mortar bombs and stuff like that. And uh, what he's going, his company, B Company, he was in B Company, and they're right up the front. And we're sitting back in the carriers, because uh, we've got nothing to do at the time. Well, mind you, we're only about 200 yards away from him, but we was out of immediate danger as far as small arms are concerned. So, if you can imagine that. And up comes this truck with a pile of dust, and out comes Frankie's. Oh, Vic, all the way, all right, Frank, you know, that sort of thing. And we're talking about things. I've got to get going, I've got to get going. So uh, so he jumps in the truck and off he goes. And he went about 100 yards, 150 yards. Bang. The old truck blew up, see. 
And uh, I don't know to this day whether it was a shell or a mine or whether it was one of these mortar bombs which were already primed. He might have gone over a bump and now bloody up blue, I don't know. But uh, I know that uh, that uh, the sergeant, uh, oh God, I can't, I can't remember, I haven't brought his mind, I think I've got his name in the book. I, I jumped in the carry and he jumped in with me and we we, we make our way over this truck. And I jumps out and, and Frankie's still sitting in the seat. He's still sitting in the, the truck's all alight. What's left of it. And he's sitting in the seat, so I thought I'd better pull him out, pull him out. So I get hold of the top, I get hold of him, and I drag him out from this, because he's got no doors, he's 1500 ways, it's all open. And I drag him out, and as I drag him out, the bottom half of him went all over my feet. That was it. So I, I, what I want to do then is to get at the geezers who've done it, because he's my mate, see, and I've, I've lost all sense of reason. I've lost all sense of reason. Oh, I can't remember his bloody name for the life of me at the moment. Anyway, he gave me a right hander, knocked me right out. Yeah, like that. And uh, took me back. Well, because you just wanted to charge at the Germans? Yeah, I, would, I, I was trying to do a repeat of what is he done. I didn't realise what I was doing. Now, you'll be all right, Vic, when you wake up. It's only a bit of a bruise, that's all right. There's nothing unusual in that sort of behaviour. That's the sort of thing what goes on. It doesn't get put down in books and journals. Nobody writes out about things like that. It may be the the people who are closely involved remember it and might jot it down later on in life. But it's one of the things what... It's not like the First World War where they was all in trenches. The Second World War was a mobile war and you was always on the move and you was always with the same blokes. So if anything happened to any of them, you felt it. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, what, five, five years I had of that, and, and then I went into paratroopers, didn't I? I could look on anybody being dead and look at a dead body and say, well, hard luck, mate, you know. You say in the book you can never cleanse your mind of the horror. Have you been, how do you live with it? Uh, it's not with you all the time, not a horror, because it's taken another form. The form, the form it took, but it wasn't that, but I don't think that affected me all that much. What sent me the way it eventually sent me was Dresden. Six, in six years of war, I'd never been in a situation where uh, there was all men killing each other. There were no women and children and old people. Because at Dresden, of course, what I'm, I'm suddenly made aware of what total war really is. Not soldiers who are getting killed and murdered. It's innocent women and children who have got all they want to do is have a quiet life, and and they're being put in an oven. They're burning to death in an oven, roasting alive. That's what sent me. That, that more than that, that's what done me. Because up to Dresden, even when we, when I was, you know, when they sent us me and Harry to death said, you're going to be shot in the morning. Even that didn't send quivers down me. I thought, we'll get out of here somewhere, you know, you're still alive. So he says, they're going to shoot us in the morning. So it ain't morning yet, mate. And Harry, Harry, he was a real nutcase. He come from Yorkshire, he... a bullshit, you know. I thought, they ain't, mate, that's what they're going to do. They're going to shoot us. Because Hitler had told them, anybody committing sabotage gets shot. And we'd burn the bloody soap factory down. 
not just a little bit of sabotage, we incinerated an old factory, stopped their supply of soap for a couple of weeks. <laughs> but no, it was uh, everything changed me in the next five days. I was at Dresden. Uh, the the first the first twenty four hours was in the bombing, and then in the aftermath, uh, when I was on this clearing up business with this nutcase of a, of a German who was, a, he was in charge of his uh, local fire brigade or whatever it was. He was a real nutcase, but he was all right. He was, a, wasn't, he was a decent bloke, even if he did kill two people for refusing to do what he told them. But uh, well, then, I, di I didn't put that against him. Uh, yeah, it's let, sort of mind you're in, then. Sort of mind you're in. Uh, he, he, this farming, we're all... We're standing in a line wondering what to do now because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about something now which a lot of people won't know what I'm talking about because all this happened and we're not on dressing yet, are we? What, what was those last few days of Arnhem like? Well, the last few days, of course, we never had any grub. We'd run out of everything. There was water to be had in some of the cottages and houses, but if you wasn't near a house, you had no water, you drank out of puddles. Uh, it, was, it was a bit naughty. And uh, we all realised that, uh, you know, that we wasn't going to get relieved now. And that was it. So then we heard that uh, it came through, because I was right on the perimeter, because I, had a, I, was still, I was still number one, although I had different crew than what I started with. In fact, I had three different crews. They all got their lot one by one. And I'm still alive. And I'm number one, and I'm the one who's sitting up. And the other two blokes, number two and three, whose job is here is to manage a belt, they're lying down, lying in a snake's belly, and they was the ones who got killed. And there's me sitting up behind there, and uh, I'm still alive, I can't make it out. But anyway, so I was one of the few um, vicars what were left. So anyway, we were on this perimeter, and, now, and we run out of ammo. Got no more ammo left at all, so we had this young officer who I'd never seen before, and... Uh, he said, oh, I'm going to go back and see if I can find some ammunition. So, OK, wherever he, And then he came back after about 20 minutes. He said, there's nobody there. He said, they've all gone out of the house. It's all empty. They've all gone. And he thinks that the Germans are in the hotel. And the hotel's about 150 yards away from us, 200 yards. And we're further to the, further to the east. So, well, well what I'm going to do there? Well, take the bolts, take the bolt out of the gun, and uh, dismantle it and sling it all over the place and we'll try and make our way try and make our way out somehow if we can Did you feel that you'd been abandoned? Eh? Did you feel you'd been no, abandoned? No, no, I, I, I'm a, I was a regular soldier I knew jolly well that uh, if you're on the perimeter you're there to enable the other blokes to get away I know, no, no, I don't know I might have only been about 25 but I was educated in that sense I knew exactly what was happening but at the same time, I also knew that having a, having a Vickers machine gun, you're not going to go charging, they're not going to send you charging over to capture some point, because you can't do it, carrying 50 pounds with a Vickers machine gun with another 10 feet of belt dangling. You just can't run. So now your job is to stop there, keep that gun on its tripod, and if anything comes near, let them have it. See? But there you are, we run out of ammo, completely. There was nothing there, the lads had none left in their rifles. Well, there was only, I think there was only four of us, actually. 
four of us, or no, four or five anyway. So, uh, right, what we're going to do, we're trying to get to Amsterdam. Which direction is that? Oh, that's north. Okay, we go north. Which is north? Well, it ain't near the river, and it ain't that way, so it's got to be that way. So, we, in ones and twos, we disappear. Okay? And they found us, two days later, they found us. Absolutely starving, lying in a ditch. So come, Tommy, come, Krieg is 30, come. So that was it, we were captured, and... Uh, Stuck on a train and go to this uh, go to this transit camp where they keep order. They had hoses which were fixed into the cesspots. See, and if you got a bit unruly, they'd switch the hoses on and you get you get plastered with your own shit. So, <laughs> so that, that is as good as good as method of any of keeping keeping the unruly crowds in order. So from there we went to four B. And it was in 4B that I realised I was never going to get out of 4B. It's too big. So I volunteered for the work camp. And that's where I ended up, at Nieder Sedlitz. We haven't reached there yet. That's I haven't right. even we been can... to Italy yet. That's right. You can, we, can, we, can, we can talk about Dresden. Go on. Well, as you know, I mean, I tried to escape twice from this prisoner of war camp where I got captured after Arnhem. And, uh, as a, and the bloke who was in charge of this little work camp he was an old, old German Matlow sailor in the German Navy. And uh, he had a little goatee beard. He was all right. He wasn't bad. He was all right. So he says that he had to punish me for trying to escape. So what he'd done, he got one of his blokes to go down. The, he went down to the village at uh, Nieder Sedlitz and got me a pair of wooden clogs with a sole about that thick, about two inches thick. See? I said, what's these for? Uh, they'll be all right for you because you're going to get a job at a soap factory. And it's six kilometres away and you've got to walk it. And this is in February when the snow's that deep. Eh? And it's coming down. The flakes come down like big soup plates. Not like this little stuff we have over here. This is real snow coming down, you know, in Bavaria. So you work at the snow soap factory until they decide they don't want you anymore. Then you come back. So off I go, I go, I've got a march. There was no, nobody over me. He just told me which way to go, and uh, that's when I went. Because they used to send us out on little jobs, two or three of us. Sometimes there'd be nobody in charge of us. We just had this big sign on the back, Kreiskafangana, KG, and that would be it. Because no, you couldn't, you couldn't get away. You just couldn't get away. You never had any grub. It was middle of winter. And then you, you burnt the factory down? Well, our job... The job they put us on, because it was a soap factory, they never had any fat, no oil, and all they had was pummy powder, which, as you know, lots of pummy powder, that's what they scraped the deck with in the Navy, to get the deck white. Uh, and that's what these old washerwomen used to use on their washing boards. So, yeah, there's pummy powder, see? And it looks the same as cement, same colour. And our job was to shovel this pummy powder into these whacking rate wheelbarrows push it along up the slope, into the mouth of this big revolving mixer. That was our job. So a couple of days doing that. And then he said to me, Harry, we noticed these Italians who were over the other side of the building, which wasn't very wide, about 20 feet, and they've got this big pile of cement, what they're using to build this wall with. So Harry says, uh, oh, Vic, he says, uh, I'll tell you what, we've put two barrel loads of uh, 
she meant it, and he said, oh, the pummy powder. So I didn't think, I thought, well, you know, it's a bit of a laugh, we'd do that. Yeah, of course, yeah, let's have a go. Teacher bastard, you know. That's what we did. And there was nothing technical about this whole thing. It was all done. The bloke who was in charge used to rub the stuff together with his hands, and when he thought it was the right consistency, the machine would stop out and they, he would unload it onto these big trays, which is a lot of indents in it. And then another bloke would go with a broom and sweep it all level. And that's how it was. They were cakes, you see, and then it'd go in the oven. But it was all watery. You couldn't understand it. Why it was watery and it wasn't like whatever, why it wasn't thickening. So he said, we've put too much water in, we'll leave it till the morning. And the water will drain away, it'll be all right. Halfway through that night, I realised what was going to happen. It occurred to me. Sure enough, we get up there the next morning, start work, I'm there at six o'clock on time, and uh, he's got this whacking great big wooden lever, the governor, and tied to the end of it is a bit of rope, which at the top in the roof is fixed to another, another sort of a starter motor. See, he pulls down the thing, and the starter, and nothing happens. We hear the starter motor go off, but nothing's happening. The machinery, the lights haven't come on, nothing. And then somebody's aware that, that all the wiring's caught a light. So, so, so you and your mate managed to burn down a factory? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Uh, because it, the factory was saturated in oil because it had been a soap factory for donkey's years. For I don't know how long, but that's what they used to do, make soap. Presumably these fancy soap things were they used to sell in them days or in peacetime. So although they had no oil or fat, it, there was plenty of it embedded in the roof and stuff like that. So the wires caught a light. They never had any spares. I mean, they never had any fuses. They used to put a six-inch nail in between the what's names as a fuse. That's how bad they were off. They had nothing, the Germans, at that time of the war. At any rate, so, of course, they, I mean, they're pretty quick. They ain't stupid. They suss it out, wheel us away in this van. And as we wheeled away... Down come the roof. Everything went down into sparks and flame. And we could hear the lads cheering, you know. But we was inside the van then. And so they, they took us up to this geezer in, in Dresden, took us to inside Dresden. And, uh, and he comes in and we're sitting at this posh table in this big posh hall. It was like a, like a big hall in a, in a council chamber, you know. And he comes in, he's got black coat, silver buttons, he's got insignia, he's got red hair, he's got red hair, swastikas here, he's got the lot. And uh, he's rattling through what we've done, and saying, telling us that we've committed sabotage, and uh, he's going to uh, send us to another place. So Harry said, uh, sort of thing, well, where's that then, mate? So he says, you go there and you'll be shot tomorrow morning for sabotage. Oh, so... And now he's saying the Mickey out of him, telling me he can't understand him. And he's talking like, like Rick, like is it trained at Oxford, and it, where he'd been, or either Oxford or Cambridge, because there's quite a lot of Germans, educated Germans who had been to Britain. And Harry's telling me he can't understand him. And I'm kicking Harry under the table, because uh, I can feel the floor moving. But apparently Harry is quite immune to all this. And how did you escape from that? Well... We goes in this big place which was full of 
people of different nationalities, all unwashed, stinking like hell. Absolutely jam-packed with them, about three or four hundred of them in this place, and it had a sort of a roof which come like a cupola. Glass. So it's crowded. So anyway, we, we, you know, a couple of big blokes like me and Harry, we were big in them days, you know. We were full of it, you know, fully trained. So we're kicking and shoving our way through, get a place by the wall, sit down, see. And Harry said, I'm going to have a walk around, Vic, he says, and uh, well, they didn't call me Vic, they called me Mac, because everybody called me Mac, because my name was Greg, a Gregor. See, the army, that is the army, see. So he comes back with a couple of Americans. They're waiting to be shot for looting. And uh, they said, there's no need to worry, because they take out 30 every morning, and that's the last you see of them. But there's about 400 of us in here, and if, if they do it properly and we're at the back of the queue, the war will be over by then. That was the general idea, see, so that cheered us up, although I didn't think much of it. I thought we saw they're going to shoot us, they're going to shoot us. But anyway, you don't let it get you down to that extent. You're not, you're not worried about it all that much. Yeah. So we refused the first lot of grub would come in because it was horrible and we wasn't all that hungry, not at that point. And then about half past nine it stopped and we had a, the flieger alarm go off, see? Air raid alarm. So nobody's worried because they think we hear it every night. And so they think it's either going to be, uh, say, Chemnitz, Leipzig, anywhere, see? All about 60 or 70 miles away. But it wasn't because we saw those streamers coming down through the glass roof. So that was it. So that after a quarter of an hour, and when the mosquitoes had left and the bombers come over and a load of these incendiaries come down through the cupola and killed everybody underneath, caught them all alight, and you couldn't put it out because you just couldn't put them out. They were all burnt alive. And then after about another quarter of an hour, this bloody great bomb landed outside the building and blew the building to bits. So there's only half the building standing and the roof was dangling like that. And I got blown right over the other side of the room, covered in masonry and dirt and dust. And then I suppose I've always thought it was it must have been seconds, under a minute when I came to. That's what I've always thought. And and then I managed to open my eyes. And then I made my way back as far as I could to where Harry was. You couldn't recognise anything. And he was... Uh, still against this little bit of wall. There was a door now. It blast. And nothing left inside him. All the blood had come out of every aperture in his body. So I covered him up with his... No, he had a coat and I covered that over him. And then I hear all this creaking going on and I'll get outside. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. I'm talking to World War II veteran Victor Greg. More after this. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. You should celebrate yourself every day. 
But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And what was it like outside in the firestorm? Well, there wasn't many blokes had got outside. There was only about 30 of us. And uh, so we standing outside, but it was like a bonfire. We'd come out of this building and everything's alight outside. There's a still a lot of these incendiaries. The incendiaries are still coming down. And they're alight as they're coming down. You're in a, in a forest of fire and it's beginning to get warm. Not really unbearably hot yet at the moment, but it's, it's getting warm and everything's alight all around you. So you can, the impression you get, first of all, is that there's nowhere to go. You can't get what's going to happen, see? But in these circumstances, there's always somebody who will lead off. Always. Without foul. So we, some geezer, whoever it was, had managed to walk in some particular direction and we all followed him. Uh, and eventually, and I was lucky because I had these wooden clogs on, which enabled me to walk over all the fire stuff, what was on the ground. And a lot of the blokes didn't have that. They couldn't make it. You just They were just hopping from one part of the land to another. Anyway, we get out eventually, and we land in this place where there must have been a sort of a, a park or a little something. There was grass there anyway, which was still grass. It hadn't burnt out yet. So we take a shelter. Well, it's not take a shelter. There's no fire around, you see, and the bombs have stopped. By then, the raid was over. And then after a time, we see this group of Germans coming up, and they was pushing this big cart. And they all had helmets on, except one bloke, and he had a cap on. And uh, I thought, well, he's in charge, and he was. And he's raking up, he's trying to find people who are still able to walk about. Serviceable sort of thing, you know. And he comes up, up to us, lines us all up, picks out the ones he wants, 
and more or less tells us in German, you know, follow me, and he issues us with shovels off the cart, and there's uh, three blokes, they wouldn't go. So he pulled out a revolver and shot two of them straight away. And the other bloke, he couldn't wait to join us. See? So I've, I thought, and funny enough, I thought, I didn't, I thought, myself, well, you've got to have discipline in a situation like this. Even if it comes to the, what he's just done. It, it didn't occur to me that he'd done anything wrong. That's the sort of mind I had at that time. The fact that he'd butchered these people, these two, without any thought, any hesitation whatsoever, he just pulled out his gun and shot them. And uh, I went along with it, mentally. What was the scene like in Dresden? Everything was alight. So his idea was to get back, and he wanted to find air raid shelters where people were in, and he wanted to get them out, see? But we didn't get very far because then the second air raid went. So he had to withdraw out again, and we and we got out a little bit further, away from, like, sort of a, but near a railway line. I don't think it was a main railway line, but it was a railway line, and there was a little sort of a depression what it run through. So we're all down there, and then, of course, the bombs come down again, and then this time, we realised that the first raid was nothing. That was uh, 600 planes, or say 500 planes, dropping, say, incendiaries and 500 and 2,000 pound bombs. There was nothing. This, lot, this other lot come over with these 4,000 pound uh, blockbusters and whacking great drums full up with whatever was used to catch fire. Enormous great things. When they land on the ground, it's a sort of big spread of flame goes out. It goes out 100 yards either side. Everything's incinerated in them. So that raid went on for about another hour before the last stragglers had gone. So everything's, everything's alight now and the wind's coming in to feed the fire. So we couldn't do much. We couldn't do, all you could do was to, to lay on the ground because there was nothing, to, no shelter. So to lay on the ground and hope for the best. And, and, and you could feel the heat that was building up although we were about 150 yards away from the nearest buildings. It wasn't outside of Dresden, but it was a, it was a sort of a place which was open. And everything was alight, everything. And then you got all this wind starts coming in to feed the fire. About It was about three o'clock in the morning, I think, when he decides that he's going to have another try to get inside this place, so he lines us all up again, and then we go. And we're still going in, and, and it's daybreak, and he's still at it, and we ain't found anywhere we can get in. But we got to a point where we couldn't go no further. No, you, you can't breathe, and, and then this wind is, you've got to hold on to something, because if you didn't hold on to anything, or have anything to hold on to, mainly we hold on to each other. But if you if you lost contact and you didn't have the strength, to fight it, then you just get whisked away. And, and that's what happens to all these, the women and kids who were caught out in the open, because when the first raid finished, after about a quarter now, they start coming out, see, from wherever they are below the ground. And they think it's all over. Then all of a sudden they're caught in the next lot, and they can't get back in time. And they're all alight. And, and there's women 
and women with their clothes alight. And they've got their little kids. I saw this woman with this little kid. She's holding this little kid and she's drawn right up in the air into this sort of big funnel of fire which was going up in the sky. And then presumably when they get to the top, they drop down again. I don't know. But and you can't explain it. You, you just cannot explain what it was like. That's, as I said before, I, I, I had five years of fighting and men. A man shoots a man, kills a man, something. So what? Uh, but when you, if you ever come into contact, once you come in, into contact with that sort of total war aspect, where innocent people, innocent women and children, and when I come home, of course, and uh, and and I'm making, I really made me feel his fault that, uh, about who I thought was responsible because I always thought that uh, that we was the good guys. And we was going to save Europe from all, all, all the horrible things that Hitler and his mates were doing. And then we finished up being worse than they were, committing genocide. There was no other word for it. It was unnecessary. I, I just felt ashamed of being British. And of course, I took I, the amount of stick I took for that. If I'd been a, any, any weaker of mind, I'd have probably been, it'd probably been a bit unbearable. But I've got enough strength in my own feelings to say, well, I was there and I saw it and I know what I'm talking about. And, all, and they can make all the excuses under the sun and I'll, I'll never forgive them. Never. For what, what, what happened. And it wasn't only Dresden. They still carried on doing it after that. And they was doing it before, the carpet bombing. They, they started it off at Hamburg and uh, it was successful and they built on it. In the book, you say it's very disturbing when you say what you witnessed. So after Dresden, you escaped. You saw the Red Army, and then what the Red Army were doing to the Germans—it was terrible. Well, <clears throat> there again, I was—I'd was, got away. I'd got away. I'd gone. I couldn't go west. Impossible to get through. So I, you could hear all the firing going on. So I thought, well, that's why right. I'll go east, and I managed to get over the Elbe without any trouble. And I thought that was a bit of luck. Nobody stopped me. And uh, I'm scrounging food off all these refugees who are coming from from the east. Crushed the bread here and stuff like that. And, and then I took shelter in his house for the first night. And I still had some crust on me, bread, you know. And, and I've got this German coat on and I've got a pair of German boots on, like these, these clogs. So I thought, if I'm caught, I've had it. So they think I'm a German. But I was so tired and I was so bloody hungry and I saw these blokes coming through the bushes. So I went up forward with my hands up sort of thing and I thought, well, it's either this way or the other. And I was so tired, I didn't worry. I really didn't worry. And anyway, they took me in. First of all, they put me with a load of other, with some Germans and some other nationalities who they'd captured. And then there was an officer come round. He was a German, but he could speak a little bit of English. And there was a Frenchman, I think, who come round first. But then a German come round who could speak English. So he, he uh, said, well, he said, you don't need to stop with this lot. He said, you can sit up in the lorry with the other lads, not with the other Germans who were going forward. I said, well, the next morning they couldn't start the bloody thing up. It was a Chevrolet, it was something they got off, off, off the Americans. 
And I knew all about Chevrolets because I'd had them in the LRDG. And so, and they're just about to put a horse on the front to put it slowly up. So I lifted up the bonnet. I got a bit of paper, a bit of rag, and I, I pulled out all the leads. I wiped them all dry. I unclipped the distributor cap, dried that off, because they're all covered in mist. Put it back, and they give it a little shove. They never had any battery, that long gone. And they give it a little shove, and off it went. So after that, I was like sliced bread. You know, anything went wrong with the car, with the lorry, Victor, Victor, come. So sort of thing in Russian, you know. So uh, I was all right. What were the Russians like to the German civilians? Well, no, they, well, it's all according. If they put up resistance, they'd shoot them. But if they didn't put up any resistance, they just passed them. They didn't stop. There's thousands of them, these Russians. Thousands of them. The, all the people, the Russians behind, apparently, what I learned, didn't have any weapons at all. They picked up their weapons off the lads who got killed in the front. You couldn't stop them. There's too many of them. And they just went on and on and on because they were the lower lot who were going to capture Berlin from the south. But they were a terrible lot. The bloke in charge uh, apparently had a very bad reputation. Were they brutal? Brutal. Well, no, not to me they wasn't, but uh, they were very primitive, put it that way. Personally, I mean, the way they treated me, once, I, once they found out that I could start their cars and I wasn't any menace, one of them gave me a balalaika, which uh, didn't last very long, it's true. But uh, no, no, and, uh, they fed me, I was with them all the time. Uh, luckily enough, they didn't get engaged in any battles, because all the Germans were on the run by then. If they wasn't, they were bloody nutcases. Until we got to this river, I was with them about six weeks, and we got to this river, and uh, just before, we got to the river, we was, we was in Leipzig, we got to Leipzig, and it was in Leipzig that uh, we had this little radio, somebody had a radio, because by that time I'd discovered some other blokes, like English blokes, and uh, that's when Churchill gave his, his talk about the war being over, at last. You, you saw so many terrible things during the war. How, how have you managed to, to go through the rest of your life without letting that just drag you down? Well, I haven't, have I? I haven't let it drag me down. It, it, what it's done is ruined the life of uh, a lot of other people. Is that uh, what it turned me into was some sort of a monster. It, which I've calmed down now. But uh, it turned me into uh, a person who, who, who could quite easily tear go in, in and start fighting with people and things like that. With that. And then the next day, I, I, I'm wondering uh, what I've done. And sort of a Jekyll and Hyde sort of person. I had no uh, respect for any authority whatsoever. I, I've, I've, gone, I've gone through life and uh, like, a, like a bomb waiting to ignite. I, 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 uh, I had a row with well with the first wife Frida. We'd had a row. We'd had words over something I'd done, and uh, I went out. It was about eleven o'clock, raining. I walked down the embankment. I got up on the Waterloo Bridge, and I'm looking over the side, thinking about something. You know, and I feel somebody's hand on my shoulder, and without a second thought, I pulled my other hand round, 
and I nearly pushed him in the river over the parapet. And then I realised it was a cobber, it was a policeman. And uh, so I pulled him back in quick. And uh, so I said to him after he recovered, I said, I suppose you're going to send me in the nick now. No, he said, that's all right, boy. He says, I've got an idea what's happened to you. So uh, I got away with that. I never heard any more about that. But I nearly threw him in the river. I was quite powerful at the time. I could do things like that. I absolutely I ruined the life of my first wife. We were married for 22 years and uh, had a, in the end we got divorced and Bet saved me life more or less. She's, she's, although I don't think she realised what was the matter with me. And uh, I wrote a book and because of the book I met this lady who was the secretary of the Dresden Trust and through that the lad in charge of the cathedral at Coventry, I forget what he's called now, but he wanted me to go up there and give a talk on on the February the 14th when they had the memorial service for Dresden, Coventry Cathedral, because they're tagged together, see? So I goes up there, this was about, what, four years ago, three years ago. And I goes up there and uh, I said, what have I got to do then? He said, well, I want you to go up in the pulpit he says, and, and just talk to these people about what it was like at Dresden. And the cathedral's full up to the brim. So I goes up in the pulpit and I'm looking around at all these people. I have got a clue what I'm going to say, because it's all ad hoc. So I start nattering away, talking about it. And then I, I thought, myself, I've had enough now. I've been talking for about 20 minutes. I ain't got a clue what I've been talking about. So then all this is definitely quiet. Then all of a sudden somebody at the back started clapping and they all started clapping. So I come down and then the bloke who was in charge, priest or whatever he called him, it had to have a loving, what they called a loving. Everybody had to get out of their seats and everybody had to hold each other's hands and, because there's a lot of Germans there and it's more so we're never going anything like this again, see. And there was this old girl. She was an old Jewish lady, she was. For some reason she kept alive, I don't know how, but she was Jewish. And she was about 90. And she comes up, she put her arm around me, she's crying her eyes out. And she's holding on to me. And all of a sudden I could feel, I could, uh, something went through me and I felt this woman. And it's something like I've never felt before in my life. I never, it was as if, what was inside this woman's mind was going inside my own mind, sort of telepathic, interchange and well there was a time before when when I was working at Ingley Point because I used to put protective coatings on I had my own business and I come home from Bridgewater and there's this place I like this cottage was a light with a thatched roof and I see this woman hanging out uh, this woman was hanging out the window and I come home I drove straight through on my bike to come home and I went to bed and uh, I woke up three days later and there's all sorts of people around me and uh, that's what it is, I've been swearing and shouting and screaming and things like that. I don't want to talk to you now because it'll upset Bet. But, uh, and then I, I really, something, you know, I got over it from then on and then when I, went, I met this lady at Dresden, so I'm completely free of it now. So this Jewish but lady... For four, but 
Of course, they've got a name for it now. Post-mortality stress disorder, yeah. Uh, and, and nobody knew anything about it then. So, I mean, that's what that's what Soldier Spy is all about, really. Soldier Spy is all about how I, how, how I behaved after the war. And uh, that's why I said to this, uh, this, uh, this audience of kids yesterday, I said to them, you see, you see an old man and he's acting like nobody else, or he's acting mad or something like that. And find out what sent, sent him in that condition, what put him in that, before you start criticising him. Eventually, eventually, of course, you get out of it, but you're never, you, you're never free of it. I don't think so. These lads who've been to Afghanistan and places like that, they're, they're lucky in a way, because they're, they're, their service has been short-lived, sort of thing. They haven't been had to put up with it year after year. And then, of course, they get injured, they're on a helicopter and they're out. And if, they, if their mates get killed, then they're not on that battlefield very long. It's still bad. It's still bad for them because uh, they're being flown out there without any knowledge of what they think, you know, they what they ride bikes in the battle. They still got Kalashnikovs. They still got the power to kill people. And they're not so stupid as a lot of people think they are. So, but for you, you think it's harder from what you saw? I, th I, I think myself that, uh, like with the modern generation, I should think it's just as hard for them as it was for us. Although, I mean, the British Army in them days, when you was in the army, you joined the army for seven and five, seven years with a colour and five years on the reserve, and then by the time you got to your seven years, you were probably stuck out in India somewhere, so you'd done a year for the king, what they called a year for the king, so that was eight years. So by that time, they was more or less, they'd had it. So they signed on for 12 years, and then they got a good conduct badge, they signed on for 21. They finish up in a blanket store or somewhere like that. Or they finish up doing a commissioner's job on a hotel. So the, the army today is, is different. And then, of course, uh, I think that the structure is something different. I don't know whether it is a meritocracy yet, but uh, I notice that the people in charge have still got eaten written all over them. Somehow or the other, they've hang on to that. You never hear of a major general coming from Billingsgate. <laughs> Victor, that's it. Thank you so much. I think we're going we're gonna to end it there. It's getting dark out. So thank you very much. Wonderful. Hi everyone, thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms, but anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.